How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that when we are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, though we cannot lose our salvation, when we sin, it does hinder our relationship with God. That by confessing our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Uh, We always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they're in fellowship and ready to uh, uh, study the Word, that uh, they're spiritually prepared for studying God's Word so that uh, God the Holy Spirit, who's the one who indwells us and who teaches us His Word, is uh, unhindered in that pursuit. So let's uh, begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful that we can be here this evening to study your word, that we can be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened by your word as we come to understand it and we can dig down into your word and gain a great understanding and appreciation for your plans and your purposes in human history, and therefore we can understand how we fit within this plan and purpose, and it gives us an ability to have a better understanding definition of our own life and our own purpose, and therefore we can uh, serve you more uh, clearly, understanding how we fit within your plan and purpose in history and in our own lives. And Father, as we study tonight, we pray that you will make clear to us the things that we study, and it will help us to further properly, correctly understand and interpret your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight... We're going to take a little pause from uh, our forward momentum in Acts. Between Acts 2 and Acts 3, I think it's appropriate for us to go back and take a revisit to a doctrine we covered in about four lessons from the ninth through the uh, 12th lesson in Acts related to understanding the kingdom of God. Now, this is important first and foremost because this is a primary Uh, doctrine in the scripture. It's primary in the Old Testament. It is mentioned numerous times in the uh, synoptic gospels, and it is foundational to understanding uh, the book of Acts. Last time as I was teaching through uh, the, especially dealing with Acts 2.38 and uh, what Peter is saying there in terms of uh, repentance, uh, I made the comment that it's really hard for us to, a lot of people to understand this idea of a transition. That at, in the one hand, there is this legitimate, real offer of the kingdom that is still being offered by God to Israel, that they, if they will accept Jesus as Messiah, then the kingdom will come. We're going to see that in an even more overt sense in, in Peter's next uh, message in chapter 3. The times of re, he says the times of refreshing will come if they will accept Jesus as Messiah. Then, uh, so this whole idea of the kingdom of God is is very important for as an underlying hermeneutical or interpretive framework. Now, some people, as soon as you say that, they sort of tune out and say, okay, I'm going to take a vacation somewhere. But but it's, it's crucial, and it's crucial for a lot of different reasons. This idea of how we understand this kingdom has uh, implications not only theologically and hermeneutically or interpretively as we get into the, as we get into understanding the scripture and what did uh, John the Baptist mean when he announced repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and what did Jesus mean when he said the same thing and what did the disciples mean when Jesus sent them out to announce the uh, nearness of the kingdom or when Jesus said the kingdom of God is near you what did this mean but when we get into uh, the book of Acts, and this undergirds uh, so much that is going on here, uh, it has an importance there. Early on in the church, in church history, 
as you see the uh, uh, the birth and development of what is called allegorical interpretation. It came in uh, through one of the early church fathers by the name of Origen. And Origen taught that that uh, Origen was a Platonist, a Neoplatonist. And so he believed that ultimate reality had more to do with the ideal than the the literal or the actual or the material. In fact, the material was tainted. And the closer we got to the ideal, then the uh, better we were. And so that's why Platonism is also, or that type of philosophy is also referred to as idealism. Uh, and so the emphasis is on the things that are out there. And on our, in our study on Romans, I've used the, um, uh, the picture, uh, Raphael's picture, a couple of times where uh, Aristotle is pointing out towards the details and the realities of the details of creation, and then Plato is pointed up towards the ideals of the universals. Well, Origen came along, and Origen said that there's basically three levels of meaning whenever you read something. Now, just think about this in terms of trying to, you're going to pay a bill. You got a bill from um, your electric bill today, or you got a bill from the water department, or you are filling out uh, some sort of document for the federal government, and uh, you can interpret this one of three ways. You have the literal meaning. He, he divided things up just like the human body. You have physical, soulish meaning, and spiritual meaning. So at the physical meaning, you had the literal or the meaning of the letter. And so uh, he would say, well, that, that has one meaning, but that's not really significant because we have to get to the real spiritual meaning. And the spiritual meaning for him may have nothing to do with the actual lexical meanings of the words and the syntactical arrangement of the sentence. And so you have the literal meaning, which could talk about Abraham being called by God to go to uh, a land that God would show him. You might have a soulish meaning, which gets into a principle that, well, what this is really talking about doesn't matter whether Abraham went anywhere. doesn't really matter if there was a literal Abraham. doesn't even matter if there was a literal land. doesn't matter if he even walked anywhere. It just matters that we learn to listen to God. Okay, so you can see there's still some sort of connection between learning to listen to God and what Abraham did there. But then origin came on. There's a spiritual, spiritual meaning here. And that spiritual meaning he would take and could go in any number of different directions, uh, depending on who is reading the text and whatever baggage they bring to the text, and they could make that mean whatever it is they wanted it to mean. In other words, they're just making it up. It's like that uh, quote from uh, Justice uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas a few years ago um, when he was speaking to a legal conference up in, uh, up in New York City, and he made the statement that if you're not interpreting the Constitution in light of the original intent of the author's, then you're just making up the meaning. And that's the same thing with any document. If you got out your instructions to fill out your uh, income tax return and you say, well, the literal meaning has nothing to do with what they really want. I just have to somehow close my eyes and, you know, channel the spirit of the uh, uh, Internal Revenue Service and somehow I'm going to uh, come up with what they want. That's not going to work when they call you in for an audit and you have to explain things. They're going to stick to the letter of the instructions, a literal interpretation. And just as another point, what we mean by a literal interpretation does not exclude the use of similes, metaphors, and other figures of speech. We use similes and metaphors every day in many different ways, but we know what they mean. A figure of speech has a literal meaning. So that if you say somebody is running like a deer, you do not mean that they are flying like a bird. Running like a deer has a literal meaning. It means that you run quickly, you run with speed, you are fleet of foot. It, does, it can't mean just anything you want it to mean so that even a figure of speech has a, has a literal meaning. So it's very important to understand this whole issue of, of uh, how we interpret things. And what happened with Origen, he came along, and he interpreted this, this kingdom of God to no longer be what it had been uh, taught to be in the Old Testament. 
Another factor that came to play in this historically was that as the early Christian church divorced itself or slipped its anchor from its Jewish roots, then they lost an understanding of the Old Testament. And they were interpreting the New Testament totally apart from any understanding of the, of the Old Testament. And so uh, that, that would be like trying to understand um, debates related to uh, various uh, Supreme Court decisions without having a reference tool for the Constitution of the United States. You're, you're just absolutely lost. And that's what ha- was happening in, in the early church. That's why some of the theology in the early church, some of the things they came up with just seems so absurd to us now is because they, they didn't really understand the literal meaning and the literal significance of events that occurred uh, in the Old Testament. And there are various reasons why that occurred, and it also led to the horrors of Christian anti-Semitism, which was one of the greatest uh, sins committed by Christianity down through through the ages, and, and they lost that, that anchor. So where this led to was thinking that the kingdom of God was not a future literal kingdom located with a messianic ruler on a throne in Jerusalem, uh, ruling a geopolitical kingdom on the earth, but that the kingdom of God was spiritual. See, we've gone from the physical, we've rejected that, and now we're at that spiritual plane of origins, and that the kingdom of God is this spiritual uh, spiritual uh, kingdom, and that Jesus is ruling in our hearts. Now, that that spiritualized view of the kingdom has its own its own trajectory and its own track record until we get into the early period following the Protestant Reformation. Uh, in 1517, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, who was a German, he was a an Augustinian monk in Germany, came to an understanding of of the gospel as we understand it today, justification by faith alone, that by simply believing in Jesus, God credits to a person Jesus' righteousness and declares them to be just. He arrives at it through a literal interpretation. He recovers, to some degree, the idea of the early early church of literal interpretation because before it was co-opted by by origin, and then became instit- and then uh, having spiritual or allegorical interpretation uh, institutionalized uh, by uh, Augustine, and you can trace almost every ill back to uh, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, in North Africa. So he recovers the principle of of um, literal interpretation, but it's. He, he he doesn't have time to consistently work it out in his study of the Scripture because he's fighting major battles against the Roman Catholic Church just to get to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so it was left to later generations to work out a literal interpretation in other areas of theology. And by the end of the 1500s, they're beginning to work it out in the realm of Israel, For example, in the 1590s, you have the first commentary written by a British theologian uh, claiming that the Jews have a right to the land and the Jews should be restored to their historic homeland in in the Middle East. And for that, he is burned at the stake. But within 20 years, there is a major movement within uh, within the Puritans to... Uh, to see the Jews get restored to the land. Their hope is that the Jews will be restored to the land. This is the prophecy. So it took about 20 years after his death for those ideas to catch on and to become become understood. So there's this slow recovery of this literal interpretation. But the kingdom of God then now it has a double track. You have the literal that is being recovered through uh, the uh, post-Protestant Reformation and then you have the spiritual that continues in uh, Lutheranism, in the Reformed Church. They never went to a literal uh, 
future kingdom. Those traditions stayed within a spiritualized form of the kingdom. So we'll just track along. You've got these two tracks that are coming along where you've got a future physical kingdom, and then you have a spiritualized kingdom that's in heaven and Jesus ruling in our hearts. Then you come to your great philosophical revolution that occurs at the end of the Enlightenment period, roughly the end of the 1800s with the introduction of Immanuel Kant's philosophy and and, uh, and the impact that that has in terms of making truth purely subjective. There's no truth that exists out there objectively anymore. It's just your perception, this person's perception, that person's perception. We can't know things as they are. We can only know them as we as we perceive them. And that just changes how everybody thinks. That 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 is a revolution. It's called the Copernican Revolution in Philosophy. It just changes the foundation of all Western thought. And as a result of that, the kingdom of God becomes affected by the by the uh, Western the shift in Western philosophy. So the kingdom of God now becomes it's brought back down to earth in terms of a political ideal, and it gets picked up by Marx. It gets picked up in socialism. It gets picked up in uh, in nineteenth century uh, liberalism, where you have people like. Uh, uh, people who, in like the, the 19th century liberals, and they see they look at man as being inherently good, and because man is inherently good, he is improvable, and because man can be improved, man's or our society's institutions are improvable, and that we can achieve a utopic state, and this is 19th century uh, liberalism. You have the rise of the social. Uh, gospel and this just doesn't impact Christianity. It impacts uh, Judaism in the form of Reform Judaism. Uh, it impacts uh, other areas of, of non uh, non Christian or non Jewish thought. And so the kingdom of God then it becomes secularized. So that this is the goal of government is to bring in uh, this utopic kingdom. It sort of gets. Uh, separated or divorced from Jesus and the Messiah, and it just has this new secular, uh, secular kind of form. And it has various manifestations within the liberal streams of theological thought in the 19th century, all of which has a tremendous impact on understanding the role of government and the role of society in taking care of those who are poor, taking care of of those who are, who can't help themselves, it, ha, it it brings in socialism at every level because there's a it's at core a rejection of freedom and an elevation of the ideal of equality. You can't have you can either have equality or you can have freedom, but you can't have both. True genuine freedom is always going to produce differences because people have different levels of IQ, different levels of commitment to uh, to achieving uh, things in life. Uh, people have different uh, different skills, different backgrounds, different talents, and so if they have the true freedom to either exploit what they have or not, you're going to have different results. And so there will be uh, true freedom always produces an inequality of results. Now, if you're trying to guarantee equality of results, then you have to destroy freedom because you have to take away from those who are successful to give to those who aren't successful. And as you take away from those who have achieved to give to those who haven't achieved for whatever reason, then you destroy the motivation and the desire of those who have achieved. And so they no longer desire to achieve at the same level because there's no return on it. There's, they're not going to get anything out of it. If, if, if the government's going to come along and take away uh, all of their uh, profits and give it to the people who don't work, then why should we work very hard? So you either have freedom or you have equality, but you cannot have both. If you try to pursue equality, you end up in socialism and Marxism, and you are an enemy of freedom. If you want freedom, then you are going to be the enemy of e- trying to guarantee or control equal results by the government or or whomever. But a lot of that has been 
impacted by this idea of the kingdom of God. So that brings it home to a political level for everybody. So if you can't get real excited about the theological concept behind it, if you can't get real excited about the hermeneutics and that, then just think about how it impacts things in terms of uh, political theory and social theories that are dominant in the latter part of the, uh, well, for uh, actually for most of the 20th century. So that's one way in which the kingdom of God is important. Another way in which the kingdom of God is important is because it affects uh, several different theological systems. Those who don't believe in a literal future, literal kingdom are um, called amillennialists, meaning they don't believe in a literal millennium or thousand-year rule of Christ. And so when Jesus ascends, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he is ruling in the hearts of men. So there's a non-literal kingdom. And so that changes how you interpret a lot of Scripture. Then you have another view that is post-millennialism, and this is the view that somehow God through the Holy Spirit is going to, uh, it has a utopic aspect to it that, that uh, through the Holy Spirit and evangelism, that culture is going to get better and better and better and the church brings in the millennium, and then Jesus comes at the end of the millennium. Now, we don't believe either of those. We believe in what is called premillennialism, and that is that Jesus is going to return as the Messiah before the kingdom is literally established on the earth. Premillennialism comes out of a consistent, literal interpretation of Scripture. However, there's this debate that goes on, spiritual versus literal, spiritual versus literal, and you get uh, various different blends of these things uh, today that dominate the scene. So one way in which this has manifested itself so that it touches the lives of people who are sitting here is that this goes along with... Um, um, uh, various uh, theologies that are teaching this already not yet uh, view of the kingdom and different forms of, uh, of uh, preterism. So as we study in this area, this is going to be very important because some of you have friends and families, members who are in uh, some churches that used to be teaching, used to teach the same thing we do, and now they're teaching this already not yet view of the kingdom, that there's some way in which we're in a form of the kingdom today. Then there are, uh, so that's one area of a problem. Then there's another area uh, where there are, uh, this is a view that's typically taught at, at Dallas Seminary now within the framework of dispensationalism, why it's called progressive dispensationalism. And we've had people in this congregation who have left this congregation because of what I teach on the kingdom of God. So this has touched all of us, whether you realize it or not, in a lot of different ways, politically, economically. Uh, it's touched us personally in terms of uh, family members that are in other kinds of churches and as well as some of the things that have gone on here. So what I want to do is add to, and I said this when we began the study of Acts, is that we're going to do some of these topical-type doctrinal studies as we go through Acts. Uh, what I said before stands. It's sort of the introduction. And now, before we get into the third chapter of Acts, I want to take this week and next week to go into this idea of the kingdom of God from a slightly different direction so that we understand it. Now, Part of this is just because I, as a teacher, continuously study and learn a little more about these issues, and I try to teach it and articulate it and explain it in a way that is uh, understood. Sometimes I think people don't understand, or maybe it's a failure on my part in terms of communication. So we need to constantly go back and look at this and try to say it as clearly as we can. So to begin with... I started with this chart today. There are two aspects that we see in the Scripture of the kingdom of God. If you confuse these two, then you're going to have a problem. They are not one in the same. On the one hand, the Bible talks about what, what I'll call a universal rule of God. And then on the other hand, it talks about a theocratic, I'll use that term, um, that's a term that George N.H. Peters used. George N.H. Peters was a Lutheran pastor, a premillennial pastor uh, who lived up in Ohio. 
He was an itinerant pastor. He was, as the saying goes, poor as a church mouse. And he wrote uh, the definitive work on uh, on uh, premillennialism called The Theocratic Kingdom, three large volumes uh, printed in about eight or ten-point typeface. That, and uh, unless you're very young and very healthy, you can't read it. And he wrote it all on scraps of paper, whatever he could find. He was so poor he couldn't go to the store and buy reams of paper. He could just he wrote on napkins, he wrote on uh, paper bags, he wrote on anything he could uh, he could find. And it's just amazing the in-depth scholarship that you find in those three volumes that far surpasses anything published today by men who have access to tremendous computer uh, programs and everything else. Uh, another man who wrote an excellent uh, study was uh, Alva J. McLean. Alva J. McLean was a founder and theologian at uh, uh, Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake where John Whitcomb uh, taught for many, many years. Uh, Dr. Whitcomb spoke at our Chafer conference here a year and a half ago. Uh, Alva J. McLean was one of his teachers when he was in seminary. So you saw how, uh, I don't mean this in a negative way, you saw how old Dr. Whitcomb was. He was 86. So just imagine when he was in seminary, probably some 60 uh, years ago, Dr. McLean was one of his teachers. And Dr. McLean, I think, uh, died back in the 1960s, and he wrote a w- in-depth one-volume work called The uh, Greatness of the Kingdom. So those are just a couple of books that, that really focus on these, these issues. In the universal rule of God, we read in the Scripture that the kingdom of God has always existed because this is related to his sovereignty. We think about the essence box. We think about the attributes of God. The first one we think of is God is sovereign. He is the ruler of the universe. Uh, he is the uh, king of the universe. And so he is the melakaolam uh, uh, in the Hebrew. He is the king of the universe. He has the right to rule over everything in the universe. So because God is eternal... His rule, his sovereignty is eternal. But the Bible also teaches that the kingdom of God is a historical kingdom. It's a historical kingdom. It it happens within the framework of human history. It is not simply a, a universal kingdom that operates in heaven, but that it is a kingdom that operates uh uh, on the earth. So these are two different perspectives. Then we see the Bible teaches that the kingdom of God is universal. It covers everything. It, there's nothing outside of its domain. And then in contrast, we also see that the Bible teaches that the kingdom of God is located on the earth. So in the one hand, God rules over the cosmos. He rules over the universe. And the other, it's the kingdom of God is located and is directed to the earth. Third, we see that the kingdom of God is presented in Scripture as God's direct rule on the earth, his direct involvement upon the earth. And then in contrast, we also see that the Bible teaches that the kingdom of God is mediated through an agent on the earth, whether that agent was David or that agent was Israel. The agent is the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate mediator. The kingdom of God is mediated through a human agent on the earth. And then fourth and last, we see that the kingdom of God is God's unconditional rule over all his creation. His ultimate authority is unquestioned and unquestionable. He is the ruler of all because he is the creator of all. In contrast, we see the Bible also teaches that the kingdom of God operates within a covenant structure between God and mankind. Now, what this tells us is not that these that the Bible is filled with these contradictions or this is some sort of antinomy uh, and that you have an antinomy teaches that there are two uh, contra- apparently contradictory statements that are held in tension and they're both true in the mind of God. It is that there are t- different dimensions to God's rule. And one has to do with his universal, sovereign, direct, unconditional rule over his creation. And the other has to do with it developing within a space-time framework upon the earth 
where it began at Eden, there was a fall that caused uh, a curse upon the earth and God reclaiming the planet for his rule, which eventually comes about through the messianic rule of Jesus Christ uh, upon the earth. In the past, I've shown you this chart before of the kingdom of God in the Bible. The universal sovereign kingdom is eternal, has no beginning and no end because it relates to God as the ultimate authority. He is, by his very nature, the king. And then we have the manifestations of his kingdom upon the earth, beginning at Eden, and then it is lost. There's... uh, as God seeks to reclaim through developing a counterculture in the Old Testament, uh, eventually with the call of Abraham. We'll go through this in a little more detail in a minute. Uh, Mount Sinai, he, he establishes the first theocratic rule through the Torah, through the Mosaic Law, and through Israel. And then, so we have the initial theocratic kingdom in Eden. Again, Mount Sinai uh, in Israel leading up to the cross. And then we have what's called the mysteries of the kingdom, not a mystery form of the kingdom. And I went through Matthew 13 in the uh, early part of our study showing that this wasn't talking about the the mystery form of the kingdom as if we're in a form of the kingdom today, but that there was new information being given about this intervening age in preparation for a future uh, future kingdom. That's where some people began to have ha- have some problems. So we're in the period of the mysteries of the kingdom, and then in the future there will be the future millennial, that it refers to the length of the kingdom, the millennial messianic kingdom that is established when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming, and then we have the eternal theocratic kingdom on into on into eternity. Now, one of the things I pointed out as I was going through the history, the background of the kingdom of God and how we sort of get to where we are today is that you have the influence of dialectics, which developed. People want to usually think of dialectics in relation to Hegel and this terminology in relation to Hegel, but this was neither his terminology, though he did have a have a dialectic. And this dialectical idea uh significantly impacted the thinking of Marx and Darwin and uh, the other uh, bad boys of the of the 19th century. And it actually has its origin in Immanuel Kant, who seems to be the uh, grandfatherly bad boy of the 19th century. Nobody see, I, I read these books that talk about the the uh, uh, bad guys in the 19th century who influence us. It's uh, Freud and du- uh, uh, Freud and Marx and Darwin. Sometimes they'll throw in John Dewey, but they are all working out in one way or another the implications of Immanuel Kant's subjective philosophy. So in dialectics, you have the thesis, and the assumption is that whenever there's this this original position, there's always got to be something wrong with it. And so then there's going to be the reaction and set up the antithesis, which is the opposite. And then you move forward by having a synthesis. And we're not talking about conrad. We're talking about how history moves. The synthesis then becomes a new thesis. And the new th- that new thesis then generates an antithesis, and that antithesis generates a new synthesis. And so you constantly keep moving. And see, I, I didn't do this right. The, the synthesis... Uh, becomes a thesis, and if you if that that becomes a thesis, then you have an antithesis and a new synthesis, and that moves you in the in the direction of the right. I see a couple of you chuckle. You got it. See, this always moves you towards liberal utopianism. It never moves you towards uh, conservative establishment truth. It always moves you to the left. So, unfortunately. Uh, I guess I'll just have to reverse this and refine it for next time so that we can show show how it goes in that direction. But that basically defines what has happened within Western civilization over the last 200 years. You You start with your original position, then you have a reaction to it, and then you reach some kind of a synthesis compromise. But that's not good enough because those people who wanted that original antithesis 
are still pushing it. And so then they'll push you even further, and they come up with a new antithesis. And, then, and by, by about the third synthesis, you're to the left of the original antithesis, and you just keep going and going and going in that direction. So dialectics is uh, part of the human viewpoint system today. I'm not going to get off onto that. I want to deal with this whole issue of the kingdom. And so what happened here is that the original thesis is the kingdom is now. This is what happens all through the Middle Ages and Roman Catholic spiritualized theology, the heritage of origin as we live in the kingdom is present. It's Jesus is ruling from the throne of God in heaven and and we are now living in the kingdom. It's a spiritual form of the kingdom. The antithesis came in the Reformation. No, 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 no. The kingdom is future. It's literal. It's physical. It's on the earth. It is yet, yet future. And so what came about in the middle of the 20th century is a synthesis. And the synthesis is, the, well, it's both, they're both true. We're going to hold these things in tension. They're illogical. They're, they're incompatible. You can't put them together. Uh, but we're going to do that. We're going to hold these two things, um, uh, these two incompatible truths together, and we're going to dismiss logic and reason, and we're just going to believe these things because we want to. And so they teach this idea that the kingdom is both now and not yet. It is and it isn't. It's already and not yet. That's really the buzzword term. It's the kingdom is already and not yet. And that uh, was first clearly articulated in systematic theology by a man named George Eldon Ladd who taught at Fuller Theological Seminary back in the 50s and, and early 60s. And it was a typical position for post-tribulationism. Uh, it's been adopted uh, by progressive dispensationalists and unfortunately, too many people who teach today at Dallas Theological Seminary have bought into this view of the kingdom, although they're, they've been trying to hire more traditional dispensationalists, I understand, in recent years, so hopefully there's some sort of a retrenchment. But this is the idea that we're, and it impacts your whole understanding of what God is doing in the church age. It changes everything. And so it really is a watershed doctrine, even though it may seem like it flies about 10 feet over your head. I understand that. It took me a while to, to work my way through a lot of these things uh, to get to the point where I can understand it and communicate it and to see what the implications are. I remember in the, in the late 80s when I was working uh, in my doctoral studies at Dallas Seminary, I was in a uh, doctoral seminar on, uh, on, the, um, on dispensationalism taught by Craig Blazing, who was one of the three founding uh, gurus of progressive dispensationalism. And a lot of their ideas really hadn't crystallized yet. And for those of us who were in the class, even though we were doctrinal students, we were still scrambling to try to understand what they were saying. Well, part of that was because they hadn't clarified it much yet either. So what does the Scripture teach about the universal kingdom? I want to talk about the universal kingdom so we have a clear understanding of that. Then we'll come back and talk about the other side of the chart, which is the theocratic kingdom. So just to take it back one uh, to that original chart, I want to focus on the principles that are on that left side, that the kingdom of God is eternal, it's always existed, the kingdom of God is universal, it covers all of the universe, all of God's creation, that it involves God's direct rule, his direct involvement, he intrudes into human history and he acts in human history and that his rule is unconditional because his authority is absolute. And so that's what I mean by the universal rule. So I want to look at what the Scripture teaches about that, and then we'll come back and trace the theological rule of God briefly through the Old Testament because this sets us up to properly understand what is happening in this transition period at the, um, at the beginning of Acts. Okay, so let me uh, advance back to uh, these other slides here. Scriptures teach that the, that the kingdom or the rule of God has always existed. We have passages such as Psalm 10, 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. Now that phrase forever and ever extends backward as well as forward. So just that phrase, the Lord 
His king forever and ever indicates the eternality of his kingship and the eternality of his rule. It is not talking about his rule through Israel, his rule through a human king, because those always had starting points and end points. So the Lord is king forever and ever. It refers to his sovereign rule. The nations have perished out of his land. That just is the result of his rulership he can, he can judge. Second, Psalm 29.10, the Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. Once again, you have this idea of judgment related to his authority, but the authority is a universal authority related to his sovereignty. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah is dealing with the time period when the theocratic kingdom is coming under judgment by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., and he's announcing that God is going to bring that form of the kingdom that had existed as this theocratic rule with the monarchy since David down to the time of, of 586 that uh, he's announcing that judgment, and so he's, Jeremiah states in Jeremiah 10.10, 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and everlasting king. That's that same word. It's eternal. There's no beginning. There's no end. And then it's connected to judgment because he rules his creation. He can then, remember that, I think it was the third point, he directs his rule. He directly rules into human history. He intrudes into human history, and he judges things. He judges individuals, and he judges nations. He also performs miracles. Uh, he inserts himself into human history. So the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. And then in Lamentations, Jeremiah also wrote, You, O Lord, remain forever your throne from generation to generation. So this establishes this principle of the universal uh, I mean, the rule of God, that it is eternal, it's everlasting, it is without beginning and without end. Now, the second thing we see is that the universal kingdom of God incorporates all of, all of his creation. You can't go to anywhere in the universe. Uh, the universe keeps expanding, we're told. You can't go out to the edge of the universe and somehow lose God. That's what David talks about in Psalm 139, that no matter where I go, if I go uh, to the ends of the universe, if I go down to Sheol, if I, wherever I go, thou, O Lord, art with me. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. So his rule incorporates all of his creation. He is in authority over Satan, who has rebelled against God. He is in authority over the fallen angels. He is over, he's in authority over, uh, the, uh, Ahmadinejad in Iran. He's in authority over Israel. He's in authority over the United States. He's in authority over the atheists, uh, even though they act as if he's not there. He's in authority over, uh, everyone. His authority extends to the ends of the earth. So, we see this in passages such as uh, Jeremiah 10, verse 7. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. He rules over all of the nations, those who believe in him, those who don't. The Egyptians who reject him, the Babylonians who reject him, uh, the uh, Muslims who reject him, he rules over all. Psalm 103:19 echoes this. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Now I want you to remember that verse in a minute uh, because I'm going to talk about uh, an a verse in the, in the Gospels. He has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Now if you don't understand the distinction between God's universal kingdom and its theocratic manifestation, then you can, you really are, you see where people can really muck up the interpretation of scripture, uh, by trying to apply this, uh, apply these in, in the same way. Uh, Daniel chapter four. Daniel chapter four is such a fun chapter. I, I wish I could have been there at the time to have witnessed this. Here you have Nebuchadnezzar, who is the most powerful 
one of the most powerful kings and human beings to ever exist in all of, of human history. Uh, probably only the pharaohs, probably Thutmose and uh, a few others, had more power and more authority than Nebuchadnezzar. And he knew it, and he was arrogant and proud of it. And God was working in his life, and God caused the downfall of the arrogant and caused him to uh, lose his mind, to just go absolutely crazy for a period of uh, seven years, during which time Daniel held the kingdom together, and uh, the Babylonian Empire survived because of the leadership uh, leadership of Daniel. But in that period of time, there, when this judgment came upon Nebuchadnezzar, he learned a few things. Uh, the announcement of the judgment is Daniel 4.17 and 4.25. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, these angels who God sets up over uh, the over the world to guard, watch, and supervise human history. The decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones uh, in order that the living may know that the most high rules in his in the kingdom of men. So the most high refers to eternal sovereign rule of God. The kingdom of man refers to that those uh, individual kingdoms and it's interesting that it refers to one kingdom, not the kingdom of Babylon, not the kingdom of Egypt, but the kingdom of man. So it's just the kingdom of Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, these are all just different manifestations of this one uh, kingdom of man. And also says, and he sets over it the lowest of men. That probably didn't make Nebuchadnezzar real happy when he heard that, but he was going to even get it more unhappy. Uh, verse 25, they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. So here we see this universal sovereignty of God again, and that God gives it to whomever he chooses. So the next time you vote for somebody and the person you vote for doesn't get it, remember God rules in the affairs of men for good or for bad, and we never know how or why things are going ultimately the way they are in the plan of God. And so this is what happened uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. And then after seven years, he was brought back to his senses, and at which time he praises God. And I believe that at that time uh, he became a believer in the Old Testament sense, uh, sense of the word. Another passage that relates to this has to do with... Uh, Solomon and his praise of God, yours in First Chronicles 11 and 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all, and your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. We just saw the, an instance of that with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the third thing that we see in the rule of this kingdom, this universal kingdom, is it operates generally through secondary causes. That's how God rules, is through secondary causes. But in the universal dimension of his rule, he also gets directly involved, as he did with Nebuchadnezzar, and you have miracles and you have judgment and you have direct blessing because God interferes in the affairs of man because he, he has the authority to do so as the ruler of, the, uh, of his kingdom. Thus he uses, uh, used Assyria and the Assyrian Empire to bring judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel as a, and Assyria was depicted in Scripture as a rod of discipline in the hand of God. That's seen in Jeremiah chapter uh, 25 verse 9. Other passages that indicate this, how God used other nations to discipline Israel are found in Jeremiah 51, uh, 11, and then later on 28 to 37. 51, 11, and 28 to 37. These are passages that are too long for me to put up on the, on the screen. Also in uh, Isaiah 44, 28 through 45, 4. And Esther 6 through 8, we see the function of God's sovereign rule over the affairs of man. So the third point is God interferes at times. Usually he works through secondary causes, but sometimes he directly interferes. Fourth, 
on special occasions and under certain circumstances, the rule of God uh, operates directly through uh, divine miracles. Uh, this is corollary to what we, we just covered. Uh, the Bible really doesn't see this division between nature and supernature. It's all God's creation. We just come along and make those kinds of artificial uh, dis- distinctions. But that God uh, inter- interferes and controls the weather, controls uh, all of these details. Fifth, the kingdom of God is, in this universal sense, exists regardless of the attitude of those in his domain. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist. It doesn't matter if you're Egyptian. Uh, if it doesn't matter if you're an Indian pantheist. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim. God rules over, over all. It's not dependent on whether people accept his rule or not. He rules over all. Now, in light of all those passages, if you take that and focus just on that concept of a universal kingdom... And then you read certain passages, other passages in the Bible, you can, it really doesn't make sense. For example, in what we was called often called the Lord's Prayer, uh, if you're Roman Catholic, they call it the Our Father. In Roman Catholicism, you always title everything with the first two words. And so, um, you know, Our Father who art in heaven begins with Our Father. So they call it that. When I was a young pastor, I had no idea of this. And somebody came to the church and they said, well, well, we need to say the Our Father. I went, what? Okay, so for you Protestants out there who've never had any, you know, had the opportunity to rub your shoulders with Roman Catholics, if you hear that phrase, the Our Father, that's a reference to what we often call the Lord's Prayer, not specifically in this congregation because it's not his prayer, because he prays that uh, he's, it's a model prayer for the disciples. In the prayer he prays for sins to be forgiven, he had no sin, so it's not his prayer. It is a model prayer for the disciples. But in that, in Matthew 6, 10, 6 verse 10, he prays, Your kingdom come, or for you King James fans, thy kingdom come. Now, is he talking about the universal rule of God? He can't be, because the universal rule of God is eternal. It doesn't come or go. It always is. And so this has to mean something other than the universal uh, rule of God. And that becomes clear in the next clause. Your will be done on earth when there is a manifestation of your kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven, which is where your universal rule extends, uh, extends now. So this is, helps us understand this universal dimension to God's rule. Then there's the the instantiation of the the how it plays out in human history, which is what um, uh, Peter's called uh, the theocratic kingdom, and um, uh, Alan McLean calls it the mediatorial kingdom. Uh, it's it's not always the messianic kingdom. It will be the messianic kingdom, but it needs a broader term than that. So that's why they use these terms. I wish everybody would settle on the same terms so we could have uh, universal uh, nomenclature out there, but that's not uh, the way it's happened in history. And this starts with the creation. In Eden, God creates Adam and Eve to be his kingly representatives and to uh, rule over the planet in his stead. They are to rule in his, in his place. Uh, so we're told with the creation of man, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is just, you know, the environmentalists just go nuts over this. Environmentalism is inherently and philosophically opposed to Judaism and Christianity, because in Judaism and Christianity, man is created distinct from uh, the animals and everything else, and is to rule over them responsibly, not irresponsibly, but man is given the responsibility to rule over the planet. And because man is created in God's image, he is created 
as God's vicegerent. That's a technical term. It's not a vice regent. A vice regent is like a vice president. A vice regent is the uh, assistant to the regent. A vicegerent is someone who is sent by the king who represents the king or the ruler with all of the authority of the ruler. And so we have passages later on in the scriptures, for example, Psalm 8.5, in talking about God's creation of man. For you have made him, that is mankind, a little lower than the angels. In the original creation, the human race is lower than the angels in terms of their physical capabilities, but he has destined to rule over the angels eventually. So man is spoken of here, mankind, the human race. You've made him a little lower than the angels, and you, you have crowned him with glory and honor. That's his destiny. This is picked up and quoted in Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 7, and verse 9 in the New Testament and applied to Jesus because Adam lost dominion, and the ruler of the planet until Jesus returns is Satan, who is called the prince in the power of the air, the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And Jesus is going to recover dominion. So all of human history from the fall until the return of Jesus is God seeking to reestablish his complete and total rule and kingdom on the planet. So it is it comes in in increments uh, over time. So Hebrews 2.7, quote Psalm 2.8, "'You've made him a little lower than the angels. "'You've crowned him with glory and honor "'and set him over the works of your hands.'" So man was set over the creation. And then the role of Jesus as the second Adam, who is without sin, qualifies him not only to go to the cross, but qualifies him to defeat Satan and eventually to come and wrest the kingdom back from Satan and to establish his kingdom. So in verse 9 we read, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, in reference to his dying on the cross and paying the sin penalty for every human being. So what happens at the beginning of this is you have a theocratic kingdom that is established on the earth in the creation, where mankind is set to rule over creation. And then that is lost when Adam sins and rebels against the authority of God. Now, the universal kingdom continues, but that manifestation of God's reign on the earth ends. And then you have a period between Adam and Noah, and then after Noah to Abraham, uh, there is God's exercising his authority over man, but there's not a mediator at that point in, in history. And then when man fails at the Tower of Babel, he's going to call out Abraham. And so you begin to have this uh, sort of an incipient or seed form of the next kingdom developed from Abraham through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, until God calls out Moses to free the Israelites. And then at Mount Sinai, what happens? Through Moses, he gives a constitution. That's what the Mosaic Law is. It is the federal constitution for a new nation, Israel. And at that point, we begin to see a new form of the kingdom take place through Israel. We'll start off with that next time, trace it through uh, the Old Testament and into the gospel so that now, uh, once again, when we come into Acts 2 and Acts 3, and we see why Peter is saying the things he is saying in these two sermons. You cannot really understand this without plugging it into the overall context of God's plan and purpose in history because what Peter is offering the 100% Jewish audience that he's addressing is that God in his mercy will overlook the fact that you have crucified his servant Jesus And in grace, he will still give you the kingdom if you will yet turn to him. That's the grace of God. Uh, Even though uh, you rejected the Messiah, if you accept him, then the kingdom will come in. And so there is still this transition going on uh, in the early part of the book of Acts. And the further we go down the historical road through Acts, the less and less that reality is. But that's why Paul constantly had the methodology of go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. 
because of the priority of the offer of the kingdom until finally God judged Israel for their rejection of the message in AD 70 and the dispersal of Israel throughout all all the nations. So we'll come back and see that uh, next week. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get into this uh, topics, to, to study these things so that we can have a better understanding of, of just what you have revealed to us and that we can see how these the scriptures to be understood and the message applied to us. We thank you for our salvation in Jesus Christ, that we might have salvation and be confident and have the assurance of salvation because it's not dependent upon who we are, what we've done, but upon Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, and we depend upon him and him alone for our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.